And welcome back to the RegTech Legends podcast. I am your host, Tom Richardson, and I have a question for you. What do jet engines and RegTech have in common? Well, here to provide the answer, we have the CEO and co-founder of Know Your Customer Limited, Klaus Christensen. And Klaus, as well as having one of the finest voices in RegTech, has very kindly agreed to share the story of his journey into the industry. Now, it's literally taken him um, around the world. And so much more. So without further ado, I'm going to hand you over to Klaus so he can tell us where it all began. I think one of the interesting questions you always have to ask yourself is what drives a a person? And um, when I thought about this this interview, it's like, where do I start really um, to give people an insight where I'm coming from and therefore where KYC is coming from? You know, for most people, technology is this shiny new toy, your new iPhone or your new giant TV uh, or car. But for the people in the inside of technology, like myself, it's often the other way around. We have this, in our case, powerful universal thinking machine. Every one of us has one of those in their pocket and on our desks. But a nice juicy problem to actually solve with this is the toy for me and for the the people on the inside. I grew up in Germany, actually, and it's uh, probably not a coincidence that one of my first jobs brought me in touch with the machine tool industry. We built uh, machine vision industrial PC applications, basically tools that could measure extreme small details of metal parts without touching them, just with uh, video and image processing. That is a nice, juicy problem that you can can sink your teeth in as a computer science graduate. But I quickly was was lured away, actually, to an even more difficult problem and much shinier toys that we can all relate to. Here's your mission. You have a switch that controls a valve injecting highly flammable fluid into a chamber. A piston comes flying up to compress that mixture until it's almost ready to ignite. You have to hit another switch just at the right time, milliseconds really, to ignite it. And then you have an eighth of an engine for a race car if you do this 6,000 times a minute at the exact right proportion at the exact right time. That's the challenge, building an engine control unit for race cars. And that's what I did for a few years. We um, had a very specialized small team that uh, engineered these uh, engine control units for Le Mans and uh, other race car teams. Very boutique uh, firm in uh, Northern Germany. It made, though, for extreme fun test drives on the autobahns segments yes. around Hamburg. <laughs> that, that was one, one interesting job. But we're talking about an area that is entirely unregulated. There is no rec tech here until here. Yeah. So that's my my pre-rec tech world. But there, then something happened. The founder of that company that I worked for at the time uh, made one big mistake. He took flying lessons in, in a small aircraft. Now, he didn't crash. He looked under the cowling, which is uh, the engine compartment there uh, in an aircraft, and found that these small aircrafts, even today, fly around with um, very old engine designs, basically from the 50s or 60s. Yeah. Basically, what you had in a Volkswagen uh, bug, uh, that sort of, of engine is in these. So they even fly with leaded <laughs> gas, and uh, the fuel efficiency is very bad and all that. Yeah. And here is the reason that connects this to RegTech at this point, because it is because of regulations. It is extremely difficult to get a new engine design, like a different principle, a modern uh, car engine, for example, um, flying. And uh, frankly, for a few thousand annual um, general aviation uh, engines, it doesn't really pay. But a few thousand engines sounded really good for us at the time. We built five or six for a rising season. And so uh, that was an interesting market. And we thought we we had the greatest idea ever. We we would take 
uh, one of the latest engine designs out of a Mercedes-Benz actually, and adapt it, adapt it for flying and then get it certified. And with a lot of willful suspension of disbelief that this is actually possible, we got there. And um, that was a very forming period for myself in RegTech because obviously this is an application where you have software in an engine design that is crucial for the function of an aircraft and that propeller stops, you do have a bigger problem. And that means the regulators, EASA and so on, have extremely tight standards to allow you to sell anything there. There are so many airworthiness regulations, thousands of pages, hundreds of tests. It's been said that to get an engine certified, you need to produce at least so much proof and paper that the weight and paper is higher than the engine. <laughs> and it's true. We, we had to deliver it in paper at that point. At some point, we put all the files on a big pallet and put it on a scale. And it was way more than the actual <laughs> engine. <laughs> so as a, as a computer science graduate at that time in Germany, was it kind of the expectation that you'd go and work in one of those uh, you know, engineering firms that Germany is famous for? And, and it would be interested to know, has that changed at all? There is a culture now that we didn't have so much when I started out of um, tech startups like that West Coast US kind of feeling where you, you start your company and you get a few investors in and that sort of thing. That's still not Germany even now, but there has been a lot of influence and it is now a viable career choice, at least at the beginning of your career, let's say that, for graduates to, to go into a startup. At that point, yes, there, there were strong expectations I would join a, a larger firm, um, maybe a, a software company and uh, that uh, might have been good for me, but um, I choose otherwise. So I think that's just a, a personal thing uh, and the luck of a draw in, in a way in, in which area you, you end up, yeah. Do, do you have a, a kind of a family background of entrepreneurship? Good question, actually. I did not. I had one inspiration in my family and uh, I could cite him on, on a list of people that inspired me, yes. There was my uncle, or is my uncle, with the same name, Klaus, as well. And he was the only entrepreneur in the whole family. He um, started a printing press, a printing shop, an offset printing shop, and was quite successful there in Germany. And um, I very much admired him starting his own business and running it and staying with that, yeah. Hmm. Um, I did not actually so much know how many struggles and how many problems and how many challenges uh, running your own company brings with it from the outside. I didn't see it with Klaus. <laughs> right. <laughs> you made it look easy. Yeah. <laughs> so, so how did that come about for you? After I started being involved with RegTech, at some point I wrote a piece of software to prove to regulators that it would log and monitor the battery usage of our system to prove to the regulator that um, our engine would keep on running for at least a couple of hours, um, even with a total generator failure just on batteries. So this piece of software, this was in 2005 or six, this piece of software is arguably, I'm arguing, a piece of RegTech. So now, <laughs> disprove me, but... I'll run with that. I have 15 years of RegTech ah. experience, <laughs> <laughs> which is a bit of a scam because, come on, uh, RegTech, the, the term is only a few years old. It's certainly yeah. not 15 years old. Yeah. Uh, we took the company public there and um, I stopped working with them. They are still active and producing engines, especially for military applications at this time. But I exited the company at the time when they went public and uh, went for greater personal freedom and created another company that uh, worked in a much smaller fashion. Um, a company in the area of email server infrastructure. This uh, was uh, 2007 onwards. It allowed me to 
work remotely. Now, 2007, this was much more special than it has been now for the last two years where we've all done it. Um, but I really enjoyed that way of working, traveling, working together, and meeting new people. So during my travels, which led me to Shanghai at one point, I met two people that would be important for the later story. And one is Kira, my wife, three years later. And the other one is Richard independently but connected. Richard then later became my co-founder. Did you then go on to found you know, your customer in in Shanghai? Or we you... did not, no. Um, we, we actually thought about where to set up the company and it wasn't as easy an answer as you would think. We had our first customers basically lined up in Asia already. So we set the company up in Hong Kong, which is a fantastic jurisdiction to set up a business. I was used to a German kind of company formation period of about like two to three months, maybe, yeah. and uh, about 25,000 euro cost. And it was very nice to um, do it for 250 euro and in one day. Yeah. One day, the company gets incorporated basically the next business day. Absolutely amazing. And uh, Hong Kong went on to play a larger role in, in our development anyway, because after founding um, the company in Hong Kong, we set up the legal structure and so on. Um, I did go back to live in Ireland, which is where Kira ties in because yeah. she is Irish and she is the reason why I ended up here. I'm right now sitting in Dublin as well. And what was like the, the genesis of the idea for, for Know Your Customer? The genesis is very simple. We found the situation when we looked at it just unsustainable for both the financial institutions and the customers. A lot of financial institutions, this was 2015, at the time were struggling uh, to meet the newly enhanced anti-money laundering and know your customer requirements. The regulations really took off during that time and got a lot tighter. Yeah. And since then, there has been successive waves of more regulations that uh, came even faster. But this was really the start and financial institutions were already struggling and there were more anti-money laundering regulations coming in. The paper-based traditional processes were completely unable to cope with it. So we were in a situation where I was advising another company for their technology, and that company needed a KYC and KYB for businesses solution, and we just didn't find any. And my co-founders and I sat down and uh, started this one. Yeah. Fantastic. So you, you you must have done a like a beauty parade of those that claim to offer solutions for this at the time. Yes, in 2015, this was a very, very narrow field. And what we found is that there were solutions that didn't quite go deep enough at all. What they did do was guiding the user through the process, which is RegTech, absolutely, which helps in staying consistent in the application of the same rules again and again, but it doesn't actually solve enough of the client's problem to make the move and uh, move the needle really in, in terms of savings, accelerations, and crucially, didn't really make it any easier on the end customer. Nobody really thought about that one at the time. And I thought, and we all thought really, that there is a disconnect between us as individuals, how we use our mobile phones, how we, we use the internet, and how financial institutions behave towards us in that crucial first phase when they onboard you for a new account or a new loan or whatever it is in the crucial phase of compliance. Compliance wasn't really going for any automation and wasn't really uh, lowering the barriers for their new customers, but increasing them all the time, making it more difficult, just adding more pages to an already long questionnaire for onboarding, instead of trying to find ways of, of making it digital. And that's what we wanted to do. And uh, we built the company from different areas uh, as co-founders and built the management team in a distributed fashion. But there was a focus in the early days here in Ireland, obviously, where um, 
I said myself, we started to find our first customers yeah. and uh, build the company up from here. Out of interest, um, what, what, what sort of time frame would that have been when you moved back to, to Ireland? Yes, it would be 2016 and 2017. Uh, these two years were mostly based here in Europe, at least, yeah. Mm. And uh, it took a while to find the first customers because here's one of the challenges of RegTech you're talking about an application that is for very advanced companies in a very important area, compliance. And that makes for specific needs. First of all, the product needs to be very complete. A minimum viable product is, is not a possibility in this, uh, this area. It has to work perfectly. And the customers are very demanding, which means it takes quite a while to get to the point where you can, from idea uh, to the point where you can sell, uh, which is a challenge again in, in other ways. Uh, we got there during 2016 and found our first customers in Europe and went on from there. In 2018, we went back to Hong Kong in a big way. I personally moved to Hong Kong and we went through a couple of accelerator programs and uh, connected to a lot of customers uh, in Asia. That actually moved the needle later on than in 2019 and, and 2020. Then um, those customers came through and we, we got nice revenue from both Asia and Europe at the same time. As a co-founder with a technical background, how hands-on were you in building that initial product? Um, and, and maybe you could give us a little idea of, uh, of what that solution looks like now. One of the things that I did have to learn as a tech co-founder with a technical background is to hand over that area of responsibility very early. So we built first uh, actually a prototype system that would uh, do what we wanted it to do. And we then went out to customers to show it and got rejected again and again. And most of the time with the uh, idea that this is not complete enough, that does not do enough for me. So what did we build at all? What's the basic principle of what we uh, make that is different from anybody else. For that, you have to, to know generally how business KYC or the KYC of business entities, KYB, works. The account opening company that comes to a financial institution usually says, we would like to open an account. The financial institutions usually would then say, well, that's great. Please give me this pile of paper documents and then we'll see. And so you start with your certificate of incorporation, your annual return, your list of shareholders, your list of directors. The uh, financial institution would then look at this pile and would process it, meaning it would extract all the names. It would run all the names against internal checks. For example, sanctions, financial crimes, terrorist financing, and so on. There are databases for all of these. After that is done, they would look at your shareholders. If a shareholder is another corporate, like a parent company, then they would have to repeat the process for that. So they would go back to you and ask you for more details. And in the end, they would ask you about the details of the owners of the companies that they just identified. Now, this is a very manual process. And there's two ways of trying to solve that. And most of the solutions that we found when we looked at the market were doing it wrong. And I would say so because I'm, we're obviously doing it the other way. So the wrong way of doing things is collecting loads of third-party data that you have found in marketing databases, from surveys, from credit scoring, from all sorts of uh, different areas and try to combine that and hope that the merging of all that data arrives at a higher quality. The problem with that is that kind of works for individuals because individuals don't change their identity, but companies do. Part of the identity of a company is the identity of all the controlling entities, the directors, corporate secretary. Part is the identity of their shareholders, the owners of a company. Both 
can change any business day. So a static database is by definition, the wrong approach. You're always working on old data, stale, that may be okay, but it may be outdated. We thought there's a better approach. And our approach was we go to the company registries because if I don't register that I'm a director with the company, with the company registry here in Ireland, that would be the CRO. I'm not a director. I'm only a director once I did register with them. And so there is actually a government sponsored golden source of knowledge. Challenge is though, that you can't get it. There is no way of just having all that data and then importing it in a big database and renting it out to cluster customers. Instead, you have to pay for access on an individual company basis. And there is the challenge. You can't do that for all the companies every single business day uh, and have a database copy. You need to do it live. Now, this is like performing in any, uh, any sort of way. If you have to do it live in front of an audience, that is more difficult than doing it in a background, cleaning your act up afterwards. So that's why solutions that do things live like this are few and far between. You don't have them a lot, but we built one. We built live access into company registries and an AI machine learning, basically based system that extracts this information, like who is a director or who are the shareholders and how many shares each of them have from the paper documents that the company registry scanned and sold to us. And we do this in real time, like while the compliance team is waiting for it, they start with the, the company name only. And after a good while, we have bought all the documents. We have finished processing all through the AI model and uh, plain OCR, obviously, as well. And we give them all that information back. And it automates so much of their journey that it actually moves the needle in terms of efficiency and exactness, really, because this is high precision data that is from today. But even more important, what it changes most is the way the financial institution can interact with their end customers, with the onboarded company. Because you and I are no longer used to doing this on paper and waiting weeks for them to go through the process. Actually, 26 days is the, the average there for the manual process. We are used to immediate sign-on on our mobile. And the system allows the financial institutions to give their customers exactly that. They can now do it themselves. They can now do it online while they're on their, their mobile, while they're on, sitting on, on their desktop and finish the process with the compliance team having a full view and all yeah. the data within minutes. That's the yeah. idea. And this is more important now than ever with a lot of the fintech firms uh, stripping out uh, any kind of uh, uh, friction from the onboarding kind of process as well is like there's a, a fair wind that I think all financial institutions need to to kind of follow as a result of that right it's not Absolutely just not good correct. enough to take four yeah. weeks any longer to... and it's great you mentioned fintech uh, because we call it ragtech today our what we do but when we started in 2015, the term wasn't really established. At that point, we actually still called it fintech, financial yep. technology. Terminology has changed a bit by now, but uh, yeah, so fintech is now challenger banks, currency, ex uh, currency exchange, and so on. Tech fin is if uh, big tech companies like Google, Apple, or the Asian counterparts venture into finances. But RegTech actually is the secret source for both. Without RegTech, there could be no FinTech. FinTech's smooth, elegant user interfaces and the, the, the high speed and the low clicks needed to onboard only works because they use RegTech under the hood. To yes. stay within the terminology from my, like my earlier days. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, I have good. to I have to uh, do a shout out to one person here. Uh, thanks, Brian Tang um, in Hong Kong. Brian uh, came up with a secret source phrase. He's uh, a professor um, of the law in Hong Kong. I do like the way that, that Brian's worded that. That's, that's absolutely. Good. It's right. Yeah. To keep he, fintech he elegant, right. the secret source is red tech. Yes. 
um, a, a question that springs to mind uh, with what you're you're doing there. I, I can understand how that would be achievable in uh, Republic of Ireland, in the United Kingdom. Uh, what what challenges are, are faced when you deal in jurisdictions where perhaps those company registries are themselves maybe less sophisticated? That's right. There are challenges if you apply them to jurisdictions like that. Uh, Bermudas, Caymans, BVI, and so on are not so forthcoming. I wouldn't say their registries aren't on the same level. They probably are, uh, right. but they just don't want to share at the moment. <laughs> Yeah, I, I guess there are t there are two types. There are some that are less sophisticated, some that are yes. maybe more uh, sensitive to uh, privacy. Fortunately, the most advanced economies are also the the most important markets for our clients. So, yeah. first of all, it's not a, a huge problem to have uh, if we talk about the less advanced registries. Mm -hmm. uh, second, there has been a broad movement of both digitizing more in these registries and in this past six years but i've been looking at them a lot has happened even smaller countries have come on board and are quite sophisticated by now and the third thing is also the openness has increased mostly due to international pressure the FADF is very very insistent there obviously and the international community uh, i don't think they they don't let countries or small island nations away so much anymore with being host to money launderers and terrorists and so on in, in finance. BVI came in and um, Bermudas have all signed up to within the next two years uh, open their beneficial ownership registers to the public. So the transparency model that we in Europe, I would say, uh, is what the Scandinavian model was in, in the early 80s or so, is taking over the world more and more. Uh, mind you, there will always be limits to what we can do from public sources. Uh, so we extended the product or into areas where we basically automate the manual process a bit more by allowing secure upload facilities for clients to supply the missing documents like they have always done, but now they can do it online, not just uh, in paper in person. Do you want to give like a, uh, you know, your customer overview of where, where the business stands now in terms of its, its global reach, customer profile? So as a business, uh, Know Your Customer is six years old by now. We are now present in uh, Hong Kong, Singapore, mainland China and Shanghai, in London and in Ireland. We have customers in 18 different jurisdictions and in, across 11 sectors. So it's uh, quite a broad spectrum. It goes from banking to challenger banking. There's corporate services, there's crypto. There are alternative finance uh, companies. And by now, we're also extending the reach into sectors that are not anti-money laundering regulated, but into companies in general that need supply chain management yes. and need information there. So there's a, it's a big market there as well. I, I always think it's interesting because there are so many people out there that want to start their own company or like yeah. the idea or toy with the idea uh, uh, and never get around to it. And in a lot of cases, that's because you've got an idea, but you just don't know how to turn an idea into uh, a business. Mm -hmm. And I just wonder, is there either anything in the story or are, or is there advice that, that you, as someone who's been through that process, have for anyone who kind of is in that position where they maybe they might be working in reg tech um, uh, in this industry and have ideas but just don't know how to translate that into reality my first advice would be just do it because that's the, the most important step that you can take it is ultimately very very rewarding um, to start a company and it is very interesting to work even in a startup it's a highly dynamic situation. It's very stimulating. There's a lot of change um, and certain people thrive in that. So if you are one of those that likes that, likes to be challenged and likes to uh, experiment with new ideas, then that is what, what you should do. What did we learn in the early days? 
we, we got a few things wrong and a few things right. What we did get right was that we went very early on back to global. We came from Hong Kong. We did a long time, uh, did our work in, in Ireland. We found the first customers in Europe, around Ireland. But going back to Hong Kong at that point and making this company a truly global company, finding customers in, in both Asia and uh, Europe was extremely important. It was the right step. But that's one thing that we really got right. Mind you, it did cost us. It, did, it came at a, at a personal cost because you uproot people and you have to move around a lot and uh, uh, live with constant jet lag. But more importantly, it cost more funding. If you start a company like this, the choice in, in RegTech, the choice of running the company completely without funding is a very difficult one. Mm. So in general, you should probably figure, and we did uh, figure in some sort of external funding uh, relatively early on, earlier than you might need for a purely one app-based company that does social media. Yeah. So that, that's one thing we found, but um, like the journey from from the very early days is relatively straightforward. We built a team that built the technology. I knew my way around technology, so I could pick the right people. We assembled a very small team that built the first prototypes, we took them to customers, got rejected a few times, got a good few new ideas back. We did follow in general a very iterative process, the agile company development, market development uh, type where we, we fed back information that we learned from the marketplace immediately into the product. And apart from that, it was more like just a marathon. It's yeah. a long time that you have to last from idea to actually getting to enough traction to getting enough revenue or enough investment to grow things faster. And I, I guess uh, over the, that those first few years, it's kind of, um, if you were to plot the growth, it's probably uh, exponential, isn't it? As, as in, you know, the, the, the time that it takes to do that first bit, you know, is bigger than it takes to do a substantially big, bigger bit further up the curve, if you see what I mean. Like it's it's harder to go from zero to one than one to ten, probably. Indeed, uh, it is. Yes, uh, that that is that is certainly the case, and we we see it now. There's a headwind the early years where you you have to push through a lot of resistance. You have to do a lot of hustling and uh, and just last and give the give the energy. But then, any business, I think that is is its own organism. It generates energy. It it starts running on its own and um, starts yeah. sucking in more people and that generates more energy and that creates a better product and uh, it all develops its own dynamic and that dynamic is fascinating to watch and uh, being involved in. I wonder is there anyone that you particularly would like to recognize that has helped you along the way whether it was on your your personal journey or uh, or contributing to KYC the business? There's always a lot of people uh, that help along the way for any startup. It needs that input. Uh, a startup is not built by one person. Um, as much as popular perception idolizes the founder or CEO, uh, it's not like that. At the same time, the CEO position is sometimes a lonely one. I learned that as well and uh, struggled with it uh, a few times. Um, so I have a lot of respect for many other founders that I've met along the way um, or, or read about. But the first uh, people uh, that I would mention every single time are my co-founders, Richard and Cormac. Great uh, to have them around, great to be inspired, great uh, to work with them on a daily basis and uh, move this whole thing forward. Uh, immediately after the, the person that inspires me and helped me a lot is my wife. The family background is important for an entrepreneur. Without extremely good backing, this all falls apart Yeah, because uh, it's so intense. It's such a marathon. It's such a long race 
that you do need good backing. And fortunately, I had that and uh, still have. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, of course, the management team, the immediate management team and the whole team, the whole staff is so important. In, in our case, think about running a company remotely from different countries as a management team while it grows from five to 54 people underneath you that is a big big challenge and uh, i'm very lucky that uh, i have the team that i have now and uh, i'm very lucky with uh, the whole staff because especially in rag tech where we are used in a compliance environment that's so important where errors have so many consequences every single last person in the company must have that right mindset and must inject their energy and thought into the company and um, it really needed all of them and their product their combined product is actually what in the end someone signs for on the dotted line be it an investor or be it a, a buyer of, of the technology uh, and so they are all important but if you think about individuals uh, that i met along the way a few would, would come up. I mentioned Brian, who also is the co-chair of the RegTech Committee and the FinTech Association in Hong Kong. Brian has been absolutely instrumental in welcoming me. You know, when you when you go to a new country, to a, to a new area where you don't have roots, or you don't have connections in the educational system or in the business community, then there's certain individuals that make that transition and help you and welcome you. Brian was certainly one of them. But um, when we first went to Hong Kong to access it as a market, we went through an accelerator program. And uh, the heads of the, the founder and the head of, local head of the accelerator program, Supercharger in Hong Kong, that would be Janos Bavaris and Brandon Chung. These two have really softened the blow of landing like wide-eyed in Hong Kong, being plunged into headfirst really into this world of big global banks from yeah. having talked to small and medium-sized customers there before in, in Ireland only. And they softened this blow and made it possible for me to sustain this move into this, this giant jurisdiction and uh, market. Yeah. One more, David Rosa. David Rosa is a founder of Neat, a banking account providing organization in Hong Kong. And uh, he's a friend and uh, has had a big impact on me personally in my journey as an entrepreneur. Told you about the sometimes lonely journey. Mm. I really miss our regular dinners every couple of months there in Hong Kong. Um, that is the only thing that as an entrepreneur, you do get uh, to connect with others. And that can help a lot. And, and that, that certainly is, is a person of, of big impact. That's fantastic. It's it's interesting. There's a because uh, we talked about two things that might seem opposed to each other there. So it's the Tell importance me. of being um, on location, right? If you want to expand into region, you've got to be there. You've got to uh, immerse yourself in it. And yet, and this is very topical at the moment, you have run a business with a remote um, management team. And, and as I understand it from what you're saying, you've done that since before anyone heard of COVID-19 but but a lot of businesses are kind of dealing with that at the moment I just wonder like how do you square that circle um, and also are there any tips or, or or any observations from doing that that you could share with us mm. it's true we have set up the company from the beginning as a remote organization that decision was only partly motivated by the business itself uh, it was partly selfish because I didn't want to be tied down in a specific office every single day yeah. because I enjoyed from the previous segment there of my life and enjoyed the traveling and uh, running things from, from afar lifestyle too much. But we also looked at the, the world and both Hong Kong and Dublin would be extremely difficult markets to compete for tech talent at this yes. time they are expensive mm -hmm. there's so many i mean hong kong is, is as a city is extremely expensive um i've never spent so much uh, anywhere else ever in my life on on a tiny tiny 10 square meter apartment but 
Dublin is the same. There's global tech companies that have made Dublin their European headquarters, and it's just sucking off talent from this market uh, at prices that we couldn't afford. So uh, it was a decision both for the business and the personal life. Uh, it's a, it was a good decision. It very early meant we learned how to deal with the situation. I didn't have to learn it last March. Mm-hmm. What we learned is maybe not that easy to put into words. I have a couple things that I could say about remote working that we learned. One thing is um, you have to just find the right people for that. For some people, it's ideal and they thrive in this environment. For some people, it's not ideal. They need that office direct interaction and structure and so on. So it's a bit of a it's a bit of a selection thing there. Uh, we all can learn it better, but some are, are just better at that and better suited to this world. So you, in, in a company that's set up this way, you, you select the right ones. The other one would be, we have this rule that um, you select the next higher channel. Actually, I have to, I have to make another shout out there. I learned this, this rule from Peldi, an uh, Italian entrepreneur that I also call my friend, the uh, CEO of Balsamic, a company for wireframing prototypes. And uh, so Peldi told me, first of all, there's different channels that you can use for communications. There is email. We all use email. Um, there is Slack chat or WhatsApp or whatever you want to use. There is a phone call. There's a video call, there's a direct in-person meeting. Now, all these channels have different bandwidths. By email, you can only see text and you don't get it real time. There's long delays involved. So you only get a very low bandwidth. You don't get the full person. You don't get uh, inflections and voice and all that. So limited. The next stage would be the slack chat because that's immediate um you still are limited to text maybe an emoji but uh, at least you can very quickly go back and forth and solve a problem but every channel from there on gets more bandwidth you get more color to the voice when you get on a on a phone call you, you get if something is meant ironic you get across cultures a bit more with video, you can enhance that yet again. And in a direct meeting, when you actually sit together, that's the highest bandwidth ever that you can get together. Now, the trick is to move up the channels when you don't get stuff done in a lower bandwidth channel. If you if you do three, four emails back and forth and you don't get things done, well, better get in a real-time conversation on Slack. When does, that doesn't help, better get on a video call right away on a Zoom call. And that has helped us many times uh, escalating things faster and and not letting them fester over hundreds and hundreds of email trails like many companies do. Yeah, Yeah, that's good advice. One of the learnings. What do you think the future holds for the regtech industry? Regtech is still at the beginning, is my viewpoint. Yes, uh, we hear more about it and we have your fantastic podcast here. So it's more in the perception and public perception even, but uh, we're still at the very beginning of application of RegTech. There's a lot more to be done. First of all, KYC for, for my specific area here, we're, we have no real customer limited. Um, KYC, RegTech have been applied primarily at financial services, but the scope of AML regulations on demanding laundering continues to expand. So there is need for RegTech in additional sectors, real estate, the art market, precious stones, metals. And as we, we saw, that's where we move as well as a company. So we're working, adapting our platform to many more verticals. And I think the industry will expand in, in scope just, and Rectech will be a lot more. There's also a continuous wave of more innovation. So we will see a lot more uh, applications using machine learning and AI in the product. And that will move things by a big step forward. So that's another thing that will change RagTech, I think, I believe more than, than it currently is. Then the the global RagTech market growth will be, we can see this starting now really, will be very, very nice uh, with compound growth rates, I don't know, north of 15% every uh, single year. 
and um, there's so much more to be done. So the growth will will mean that the market itself will be bigger, uh, but of course it will also mean that there will be some consolidations uh, in the years to come. There will be companies consolidating different parts of that market under one roof. Partnerships we already do. And so there's beginnings of that uh, that we can see. That is one trend I'd say we'll we'll see. Yeah. There's uh, one thing that drives all this, that's regulations and it's customer experience expectations. Regulators will continue to tighten the screws. They will continue to incorporate technology into their regulations and even more push the adoption of RagTech. We can see that, for example, in um, Hong Kong, our home market there, uh, how the HKMA, the Hong Kong Monetary Authority, is uh, issuing these circulars and these guidelines in how to use RegTech in yep. their uh, regulated institutions. So it's a lot happening. And lastly, I think one very interesting topic to watch is the application of RegTech to ESG. Sustainable finance and ESG and the industry as a whole is growing wildly at the moment. The societies are looking at these issues much more than they have been in the past. And uh, I think that's a good trend, but it's also a very difficult topic to make work. Um, ESG measures are only at the very beginning. We hardly have numbers for for a lot of things, and we don't have methodologies tied down. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Some of the numbers that we do have, they're difficult to justify (laughs) at the moment. Yeah, yes. So all that is is uh, there's a lot of work to be done, and um, the the danger of of all regulations and and looking at these things and wanting to improve them is always that we make it too hard on the underlying industries or the customers or both, and then you get side effects like people trying to circumvent the regulations and RegTech can help there. So I think the application of uh, RegTech in, in ESG is, is a very interesting topic. Yeah. I had a question that popped into yeah. my head. I wish I'd written it down um, as you were just talking there. Because um, we, we were talking about obviously the growth in RegTech, uh, growth in the opportunity has led to a growth in the market and, yes. and some of the kind of um, analysis that we've done on a previous podcast, it seems like we're in the second wave of consolidation at the moment with the first wave happening kind of around, uh, I think it's like 2008 to 2010 or something like that with um, what we now know as the bigger companies being acquired and i've heard it said that there is arguably more technology out there than that those in compliance are willing to buy if you see what i mean right like yes and i just wondered do you agree with that sentiment i suppose for a start because you may not do and and just what your view is on that Interesting thought, actually. Is there too much technology out there more than the sector actually can absorb? I would argue that there isn't even enough technology out there yet, so that it needs even more uh, to solve many more of the problems that are still out there to be solved. Uh, But they are not that accessible. I think there's still a huge, huge gap in communications between the tech companies, what they do, what the core of their offering is, and how they can take that to the clients. And it's so hard. I, I really feel for the compliance teams and the, the uh, financial institutions, the buyers on, on that side. It's so hard to even find out what all of these rag tech companies do yes. and what exactly, how exactly would that help them. In part, this is due to the huge cultural differences between tech startups and established financial institutions. But the other reason is, I have to actually admit, is on the side of the tech startups. We usually try not to exclude any potential customers and therefore try to make our communications to the market as broad as possible. We can do all end-to-end KYC, all areas from A to Z, from up to down, and we don't exclude any specific one. We don't concentrate. That's not actually true. The technology of every RegTech company is best suited in a specific segment and has 
okay application than others, but is never the same quality of offering for everybody. Uh, but that is one of the, the challenges there in communication. So sort of seeing through the noise to, towards who does what, you know, when inevitably on the vendor side there, yeah. there's a reluctance to, to sort of admit to not being able to do something if it represents an opportunity. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Maybe there's, there's all sorts of sales out mostly during the time that follows the, the growth when the director companies themselves get more mature and more sure that they can deliver in a specific segment and uh, look at that and not just have to chase every single bit of yes. revenue that they can get. Yeah, no, yeah. it makes sense. Klaus Christensen, if you could go back in time and offer one piece of advice to your 18-year-old self, what would it be? That's an interesting one. I would tell myself to risk more because really the only things that I regret is to have been too careful. This is sometimes challenges came up that meant I had to grow as a person, but from my, from my older self, um, looking back, I see each of them worked out like in some way or other. Yes. Sometimes it wasn't easy, but, uh, every single time there was some growth and it, doesn't kill you to learn something the hard way. It's hard, okay, but you grow as a person and you come out uh, better the other way. So more of those experiences are actually better and you get them by risking more early on. And I, I like uh, coming from Germany, I had a very different upbringing. We touched on it uh, in the beginning. I would have been very conservative in the first few years and would have stayed with a job much, much longer than uh, maybe I would today. <laughs> Fantastic. So learning, learning a lesson the hard way is, is sometimes the, the best way to, to learn. It is a good thing. Yeah. Just go through it. <laughs> go for it. Fantastic. Klaus Christensen, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Tom. That was excellent. Thank you so much for having me.